Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta continues to make waves in the best way as they perform Schubert's Trout Quintet at the Georgia Aquarium this Sunday. Pianist and artistic director Will Ransom will tell us about Schubert's glorious melodies and the unusual scoring of the Trout Quintet, which includes a double bass. Double bass is also in the spotlight with WABE's H. Johnson as he profiles the virtuoso jazz double bass player Leroy Slam Stewart later this hour. First, if you had one thing to tell the world, what would it be? There's no quick answer to this question. But John Dixon, the artistic director of the vocal ensemble Coro Vocati, posed the question to elementary school students. Their responses inspired the title piece of Coro Vocati's fall concert program, Dear World, written by a group of composers at Louisiana State University. Coro Vacati will perform the piece as part of their concerts at Morningside Presbyterian Church and Holy Innocence Episcopal Church on Saturday and Sunday, October 1st and 2nd. John Dixon joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thanks, Lewis. It's great to be back again. Would you talk about how Emily Dickinson's poem, This Is My Letter to the World, inspired you to create this project and musical performance? Yes, I've always enjoyed uh, Dickinson's poems. And for some reason, this just this one came to mind. And this fascinating thought of writing a letter to the world just caught my interest. And that became the theme for this project as well as for this concert. Mm. The poem by Dickinson is 
beautifully succinct, almost cryptic. Yes, it is. Will you recite it? Sure. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. What is the meaning conveyed in this short poem? Well, I mean, we know Dickinson was uh, a recluse and she had uh, such isolation and not many people to associate with. She didn't hear a lot from the world, but the world told her much through nature and her observations, I think. And so her message, simple, that nature told with tender majesty, uh, I suspect uh, the beauty that could not be told by any person. Mm. John, why did you want to ask this question to a group of elementary school students? Well, we know out of the mouth of babes come some amazing comments. And I thought particularly in this, now this was pre-pandemic when I asked these kids, when I was at LSU actually, uh, but I just thought it would be very fascinating to see what children would say if, if they had one thing that they could uh, ask the world. One of our LSU students was, uh, our graduates was teaching elementary and I asked her to ask her class uh, if they would write a letter and what would they say to the world if they could say one thing. And I got some amazing responses from all of these kids and I then just kind of selectively sampled uh, enough to to pull some thoughts from three of the children's writings. Hmm. Would you tell us some of your favorite answers? Yes, Sarah's letter says, uh, I will plant flowers and I won't litter. I will be polite by picking up things in the grass, and I will bless you, world. So Sarah's was very much a, an environmental approach to the planting of trees and flowers and, and not littering, as she says. Braden's caught me the most because of the amazing insight. He's, he writes, I'll give you just part of it, but he says, why do we have wars and power? I know you want to be the powerfulest, but what if there were no number one? Please, world, make peace. Queens and kings, y'all can still be kings and queens, but don't make war. And finally, he says, and why do you want to be number one when there can be no numbers? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes, in preparing for our conversation, I have to tell you, Braden's letter was my favorite. Yes, yes. One particularly interesting song choice is Numbers by Shruti Rajasekhar. Is that song related to Braden's letter? Yes, absolutely. I discovered this just as I often do, just searching through choral music on 
YouTube or whatever, and I found this amazing young Indian woman composer, Shruti Rajasekhar. And the entire piece is nothing but numbers. And it's one of the most complex rhythmic pieces that I have ever seen. It's quite a challenge to, to the singers. In fact, they're still, uh, they're still struggling a bit. They'll get there, but it's not easy. But the whole piece ends with this repetition of the number one and zero. One, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, and then it ends. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, And so it's that beautiful depiction of what if there were no numbers. Wow. Other composers featured in Dear World in the concert ranged from the early 20th century British composer Rayfon Williams, whose work draws on English folk songs. Yes, and, and von Williams, of course, this is his sesquicentennial. So we're doing that as an homage to von Williams, both some solo repertoire as well as choral. And you include music by a rock star choral composer, the contemporary Grammy winner, Eric Whittaker. Yes, Eric's a good friend, and I've done so many of his pieces, but his early music, these three flower songs, we're doing two of those to celebrate Sarah's letter of planting flowers. And we also have a wonderful piece by Kentucky poet Wendell Berry, which is planting trees early in the spring, makes the birds to sing. And that worked out very, very well. I want to certainly mention the composers of these children's pieces. I gave these texts to three young women who are singers in my LSU choir, and uh, they're composers, and they had two minutes of music each to write and to make these fit so that they all three work together as a set. The composers are Michaela McQuesten, who is a native Atlantan, Alana Scott, and also Hannah Rice. And uh, they did a brilliant job with this piece. Sarah's letter and Braden's letter. I don't want to omit the third. Right. Clara's letter is also significant. She writes, if I could change the world, I would make sure everyone had the joy of doing the one thing they have always dreamed to do. 
whether it was to dance or learn to fly a plane, just do what they feel is calling them to do. That would be how I would change the world. The sense of calling is pretty profound for a young fourth grade elementary student, but it recalls uh, for me the beautiful mystic and spiritual writer Friedrich Biekner, who talks about calling. And he says maybe the voice we should listen to most as we choose a vocation is the voice that we might think we should listen to least. And that is the voice of our own gladness. I believe that if, if it is a thing that makes us truly glad, then it is a good thing. And it is a calling voice that we were made to answer with our lives. And so I hear Clara saying, if the world could only do each person what they felt called to do. So uh, we're doing the Vaughn Williams call from the mystical songs. Uh, we're ending with the antiphon, let all the world in every corner sing. And then as an epilogue, we're doing uh, Craig Hella Johnson's combination of I Love You and the very familiar What a Wonderful World. about the children's letters, their wisdom for their age especially. But what's also striking is that they each reflect on longing for peace and a desire for happiness. Why is it important for adults to listen to younger generations about their concerns for the world? Sure. I, I mean, children reflect the culture and society that they grow up in. They're so aware of the concepts of global warming and climate change and what we must do to save our planet from an ecological standpoint. They're certainly aware of the Ukrainian war and, and other parts of the country that are warring instead of making peace. And they also see, I think, post-pandemic, perhaps maybe even their parents and others that are rethinking their jobs, what they do with their time. Are they really doing something they want to do? Are they just going to work and trudging through every day to get to a weekend or a holiday? Or are they really doing something that they, as Bigner says, that gives them the most gladness? John Dixon, 
artistic director of Coro Vocati. Their concert series, Dear World, takes place at Morningside Presbyterian Church and Holy Innocence Episcopal Church this weekend, October 1st and 2nd. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll head to Italy and hear about the PBS drama Hotel Portofino. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The lure of Italy is centuries old, and that irresistible appeal is central to Hotel Portofino, a new PBS series streaming now on PBS Passport. The series follows the Ainsworth family, who have relocated from Britain to open an upscale hotel in a quaint town on the Italian Riviera. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more about Hotel Portofino are the executive producer Walter Luzzolino and writer Matt Baker, welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Under the Tuscan sun was just one in a very long line of phenomenally popular stories set in the sumptuous beauty of Italy. What are the origins of Hotel Portofino? I think the origins, from my perspective, I would like to take you back to a a rather uh, damp and cold and dark autumn day in London back in 2020 when we were deep in the uh, second lockdown as a result of the uh, COVID pandemic. And I wanted to write something which was, given the mood of the time, unashamedly escapist and unashamedly sunny. I suppose the other thing to add to that is that I've always been, you know, I've always had this enduring love of Italy. I visited it first when I was 13. I was lucky enough to go on a school trip to Venice, of all places, and uh, 
and I fell in love with the uh, culture and the cuisine and the climate um, in those early days. So those were the inspirations. And then in conversation with Walter, who works for Eagle Eye Drama, which is the company that oversees production with his business partner, Joe, we, we talked about setting a, a drama both in, in Italy, but also in the period of the 1920s partly because it's an exciting period in history, but also because there are obvious parallels between the 1920s and 100 years later, the the 2020s. So Walter is a a native of the Ligurian region where uh, Portofino is found. And um, between the three of us, we came up with the idea of setting a a drama based in a a hotel on the Italian Riviera. And indeed, the period following World War I allows for multiple storylines and drama. How does the time period inform this series? I think, I mean, very specifically, obviously, it adds a dramatic backdrop to the the family drama and the love story that forms the core of the series. So it allows us to play with shades of light and dark because obviously Italy in the 1920s was going through after the war was going through a period of significant upheaval with the the rise of Mussolini and the advent of fascism it was a very complex time in Italian history so it, it in the immediate context of the show it gives you the ability to play between light and, and, and dark as I said I think more broadly I think it allows you to pick out themes and, and actually encourage the audience to see parallels in, in some of the themes between uh, the sort of stories of personal awakening and personal enlightenment that our characters are going through in the 1920s and some of the issues we're still wrestling with as a society today, some of the issues around identity and culture and personal freedom. So I think it was the combination of those two things, the, the ability to, to play with light and shade and, the, and to sort of include a, a sort of historical political storyline around the rise of fascism in Italy, but, but also the, the chance to play with some broader themes and to in, encourage the audience to see some parallels between the, the, you know, the, the time we're watching, the 2020s, and that period 100 years ago between, between the, two, the two world wars. And indeed, those themes you mentioned, the parallels, are striking extreme politics, intolerance, the rise of totalitarianism, war at its core. In episode one, we meet various characters staying at or living in the Hotel Portofino. Would you introduce us to the main players? So the main, the core of the story, it has an upstairs, downstairs dynamic at its heart. So you have the Ainsworth family, you have Bella Ainsworth, who's the sort of the matriarch of the family. She's the moving spirit between behind her family's move to Italy. I think her idea is they've been through personal trauma. Her daughter has been, been widowed, has lost her husband during the war. Um, her son has been injured during the war and she thinks moving to Italy will, will, will give him a fresh start. With her is her aristocratic husband, Cecil Ainsworth, who is our anti-hero, I guess. Cecil's very charming, but he's also a bit of a cad and 
these sort of preying on Bella's good deeds, if you like, to sort of live a rather dilettant lifestyle. And then there are the two, their two children. There's Alice, as I said, who's a who's a war widow, and there's Lucian, who's who's an artist who who's still sort of eight years on, still sort of recovering from the sort of mental and physical scars of uh, that he's experienced in the war. And then downstairs, if you like, there's the staff that are. Uh, helping them populate and operate the hotel. There's a variety of, you know, there's Betty the cook, there's Billy, her son, and probably most importantly, there are a range of Italian characters, local Italian characters who are waiters and handymen. And there's also this character, Constance March, who's a, who's a young woman from a working background who has had a difficult experience in the past, but is sort of coming to Italy to try and find a new way forward in life for herself. So that's the core dynamic. And then around that, obviously, the beauty of setting a, a, a drama in a hotel is you have you have various, the, the guests, if you like, the various characters, whether they're uh, a rather aristocratic and haughty matriarch, matriarch um, Lady Latchmere and her traveling companion. Cut. Calm down, dear, don't flash. an English tennis champion and his wife, an American art dealer and his wife in inverted commas, a lady he's brought with him for a week away and, and various other characters as, as well. And then around that, obviously, there's the, the, the locals and um, Italian characters, including a sort of local, a local fascist dignitary, the sort of local leader of the fascist party, who's who's probably our our most conventional baddie, if you like. Oh, you are too kind, calling him a dignitary, Matt. <laughs> well, I think the bit one of the key themes of Hotel Portofino. Walter will correct me on this if I'm going too far, but I think there's always this running joke about Italian bureaucracy. And Danioni is a fascist, but he's also a hard, a petty bureaucrat. He's, his whole thing is about using the rules to personally um, enrich himself. So yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a baddie on, on different levels. Signore, how can I help you? Well, it is a delicate matter. Let's see how to start this. Um, I believe this belongs to you. Who gave that to you? You have to know nothing happens here without me knowing about. But this is a private letter. I know, full of private sentiments, and it will be una grande disgrazia. I mean, it will be a disaster if this, let me see, fall into the wrong hands. Yes, you're quite right. Well, then, I must thank you for returning it, Signora. Please. Sure. Let's hope the many letters you wrote have reached their destination. Hmm? Signore, what exactly is it that you want? What we all want, Signor Answorth. Sony. Even in episode one, we develop a sense of who the endearing characters are and who will be the villains. Mrs. Ainsworth is 
a lovely person. And she is smitten with beauty. There's a wonderful scene where she puts a record on the gramophone and we hear the Casta Diva, the famous aria from Bellini's Norma. How does this theme of salvation through art or the healing power of art unfold in the story? That's that's actually, I can take a bit of credit for that one because as Matt knows, and he's an opera lover himself, but I'm a rabid opera fan and lover. And when we were brainstorming the show and, and Matt created the main characters and the storylines and the plots and, and all together with Matt and, and with Joe McGrath, who's the chief creative officer at our production company, we were all sort of throwing in elements that reflect our own passion and love and enthusiasm for Italy and for the subject matter and for storytelling in general. And the idea, first of all, of music and gramophone was very dear to both of us. I remember, Matt, I left you a vocal message on that on the way to the tube. And, and Matt responded very quickly saying, that's a good idea. It can create a very choral moment where we pause for a moment. We don't just necessarily propel the action forward, but we pause and we allow all characters to come together and to listen to sort of echoes of the music in and around the hotel, which felt like a really lovely, magical touch. You're absolutely right, Lois, that the overall and overriding idea is uh, the redeeming power. It's not just that, but it's the redeeming power of beauty, but also the unsettling power of beauty, because you were referring to uh, existing literature in this space. You're on, of course, there's Ian Forster and, and all the sort of enchanted April room with a view where angels fear to tread. So there's a, there's a wonderful and illustrious tradition of British literature, of the sort of innocence abroad, which is buttoned up, pale Brits, go to Italy, are exposed to the sensual, ravishing beauty of the country. And, and that somehow transforms them and transforms their outlook on life. And sometimes with positives, other times with very dramatic consequences. And so Matt, myself and Joe were all fans of that strand of wonderful, I would say, Victorian onwards type literature. And so we definitely wanted to tap into that. And Bella completely embraces and, and is central to that spirit. You're absolutely right. She's this delicate, kind, giving woman, but she's also incredibly passionate and, and responds to beauty. And beauty is what inspired her when she first saw the place during her honeymoon. And she thought that, that Italy and its beauty would provide a cure for the family scarred by the war, as Matt hinted earlier. That theme is threaded throughout and across the entire series. And actually, beauty becomes a magnet for drama anyway. Even when, the, you, I don't give any spoilers, but there's a story about a Rubens painting, or is it Rubens? That's the question. There's a, there's a painting and there's an intrigue around that and what happens to that, because it's obviously a canvas potentially of significant value. And that's also another instance in the program where beauty galvanizes the story and the characters around it with quite dramatic consequences. So I, I think that 
you're absolutely right. The beauty is the subtext uh, in all its manifestations. But I think that in the end, and there are lots of dramatic ups and downs all across the series. But I would say that the glue is the beauty of Hotel Portofino and of, of the seascape and of the rocks cutting into the sea and on the old fishermen's houses. And it's imbued with that. I think the director did a stunning job of creating fantastic vignettes that are very skillfully woven across the fabric of the program. And so no matter how funny, tragic, dramatic, tense the moment you might be watching is, there's always a moment after that lets you breathe, a bit like the Bellini piece you were referring to now, where you take a breath and you remind yourself that you are in this extraordinary kaleidoscope of beauty, nature and charm. Walter, I am just speechless at your description. It's exquisite and it sums up the series so beautifully. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with two of the creatives behind Hotel Portofino, writer Matt Baker and executive producer Walter Luzzolino. I was hoping if you would talk about Matt, you or Walter, if you like, please talk a bit about the American character. For once, he doesn't, or at least early on, it's not the ugly American we see so much. What is his role and what does his presence with his attractive lover provide? I should preface this answer by saying, just as I'm a huge fan of Italy and Italians and all things of that part of the world, I'm also a huge fan of America and Americans and all things American as well. So do you know what the nationality, Lewis, wasn't really, I guess, what I had in mind when I, I drew the character of Jack Turner? For me, the characters don't sort of separate into nationalities. They, they separate into mindsets, if you like. I think there are people who I would probably label progressives. And I think Bella is the leader of that camp, if you like. And then there are people I would label conservatives. And I think uh, Cecil is probably the leader of that camp. And then there are lots of characters who probably some magnetise towards one of those poles and some magnetise towards the other. I think we've got two American characters, and I suppose one of them, Jack, the male character, probably magnetises a bit more towards the Cecil camp. He's a he's a businessman. He's a man of the world. He's self-made. He's dynamic. But he, like Cecil, he he has quite a narrow mind and his, his view of the world is very much, uh, you know, through the prism of what things are worth. And he's very transactional. So that is the Jack Turner character. He has, you know, I, I think with all our characters, they have duality. We hope I wouldn't want any of our characters to be irredeemably unlikable or unpleasant, but equally not even the characters we like and root for have flaws and make mistakes. So there's Jack and then there's Claudine, who is a, a singer and a, an entertainer, sort of from a from a, a lowly background who sort of made her way to to Europe and has found success and is now living a life sort of representing a sort of degree of sort of social liberation, particularly for women at the time. So there are a couple, if you like, who share a nationality, but as the series goes on, they're sort of drawn apart. They're, they're probably brought together by 
uh, material aspects of the lives they lead, but actually as the as the series goes on and circumstance affects them, you you find them probably drawn more into the separate camps, and and, and Claudine, the female character, probably being drawn more into the world of the progressives, and and Jack the more conservative character being drawn into the, the world of the conservatives, if you like. Well, and the fact that Claudine is African-American is an important aspect of how their story unfolds as a couple and how certain people perceive her at the time. Not only that, for sure, uh, Lois, but also there's a, there's a historical precedent which Matt and I were inspired by, which is obviously Josephine Baker. Is such an extraordinary political character of, of an American woman that, that defies tensions within her own culture to find power and success and self-affirmation in France, of all places, where she becomes a female brand. We discussed this several times how sort of before any Coco Chanel or whatever, Josephine Baker was singer, dancer, actress, but also she had chains of restaurants. She had, she sold puppets. She bought a castle. She was working within French politics during the war. So she's one of these extraordinarily multifaceted individuals that transcended any racial, sexual, cultural stereotype to, to affirm life models and paradigms that are, that are extraordinary nowadays. All her adopted children. I mean, we watched several documentaries on Josephine Baker. We knew and loved her anyway, but we documented ourselves before getting into the writing of this. And it's still gobsmacking what the woman achieved and what she represents. So we felt it was such an interesting connection to the contemporary world, but that, that it was rooted in reality, was rooted in somebody who indeed existed. You know, if, if you look at Claudine, she almost looks like a work of fiction and fantasy because she's so interesting and, and rich and complex, and yet she's based on somebody who was infinitely more complex as we saw through, through the decades. So I think that was an important thing to reflect in that. And also representative of a number of black artists, jazz musicians, painters, writers, poets, who were able to find some liberation in relocating to Western Europe at the time. Matt, I read that this is your first original series for television and that your background is in journalism. That's correct, Lois. So um, I was a, a specialist reporter about media and television for, for many years. And actually, I also worked in corporate relations for a number of kind of large British and and even American uh, institutions <laughs> and companies. So I'm I, I'm one of these people who very with with huge gratitude to Walter and Joe, who, who believed in me and gave me the opportunity. I'm one of these uh, people who, who used the the pandemic and the upheaval that that caused in all our lives to sort of pivot away from the path that I was on and, and and to head off to do something that I've always aspired to. I've always written, Lois, I've always written, you know, got up in the morning or late at night, I've always written and I've tried to write novels and, and poems. And I'm, it's not like I'm an entirely new to creative writing, but this is this is my first attempt in original screenwriting. I've done some adapted series before for television, but this, yes, Hotel Portofino is, is my first piece of original writing for, for screen, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity, but also very proud of it. 
writer Matt Baker and Walter Uzzolino, the executive producer of Hotel Portofino. This series is available for streaming on PBS Passport, and it was recently announced that the show is filming a second season. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Schubert Strout heads upstream to the Georgia Aquarium. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A couple centuries before Hootie and the Blowfish, or even Fish, spelled with a PH, the Viennese composer Franz Schubert had a hit with the trout. And now, the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta is taking Schubert's trout to the Georgia Aquarium. Professor Will Ransom, pianist and artistic director of the Chamber Music Society, joins us now via Zoom. Will, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Always a joy to speak with you. Let's talk about the trout. It began life in one form and evolved into another, just as Darwin might have explained. So tell us about the origins of the trout. The origins of the species. as it <laughs> Yes. So it began life as a song that Schubert wrote, uh, one of the many over 600 songs that he wrote they just flowed out of him like like water shall we say like a river and this one originally had a different meaning the poem itself than it came to be it was more about uh, i believe a lover leaving another but schubert wanted to focus just on the trout himself and wrote this wonderful song with a accompaniment in the piano part that you just cannot listen to without hearing the water flowing. It's just extraordinary how he was able to paint that in sound. sure how much longer after that he was with a gathering of friends with uh, interesting instrumentation of friends including a string bass player which you don't generally find in chamber music except for a handful of pieces and because Schubert uh, at that time loved to party his Schubertiads were basically parties where they would 
play his music then just for friends. He put together this wonderful quintet for piano, one violin, one viola, one cello, and the string bass. And one of the unusual aspects of it is that it's not a four-movement piece, which most of these kinds of, of works are, but he added an extra movement just so he could showcase the variations on his beautiful trout theme. And it's one of the most beloved pieces of chamber music or music of any kind that's ever been written. And it's truly a timeless piece. And I've wanted to program it at the aquarium for such a long time. And I'm thrilled that here in our 30th anniversary, we're going to be able to celebrate by presenting it there. When did you have the idea to perform this piece at the aquarium? Probably from the day the aquarium opened. <laughs> <laughs> As a kid, I actually had aquariums myself. I had three or four big ones, and I loved uh, raising all sorts of tropical fish. I'm a bit of a collector of many different things, and at one point it was fish. <laughs> and so I've always loved that, and I'm a, a standing member of the Georgia Aquarium as well. I thought it was so special when, when it was announced that it was going to come to Atlanta and to be able to bring music there. And of course, what could be better than bringing the trout to the aquarium uh, was a, a dream that I've wanted to realize for a long time. Now, in what part of the aquarium will the music be played? If you know the building at all, you know when you walk in, there's a huge kind of atrium or lobby area, and then you go off into the various exhibits. And we'll be right there in, in the middle. Uh, there's a little fountain up and almost a stage-looking place where the piano will be brought in and we'll set up. They'll turn the fountains off for us, of course, so you can hear the music. And I'm also thrilled that before we perform the quintet, that we'll have Atlanta's favorite tenor, Timothy Miller, will sing the original song as well. Yes, now will he be in his tuxedo with the boutonniere like he is for the Braves game? <laughs> I'm not sure. We haven't decided on what, what our dress will be. It's an afternoon concert, so maybe not quite that formal. Will, were there any special considerations or were you given specific rules for the sound that would emanate in the aquarium? I mean, fish can hear, can't they? <laughs> That's right. There was the question of if we might disturb the fish in some way, but I'm hoping that they'll all just join in and sing along. <laughs> we'll find out. But no, there was no real worry about that. I think it's it's separate enough from where the actual fish are in that main lobby there. So that won't be a problem. Of course, we had to arrange bringing in a piano and getting set up. And it will be a, a new experience to see what it sounds like in that setting. But I think it's going to be great fun. 
And I was thrilled that as I was working with the, the people there to set it up, that uh, Roger Montiel, who's in charge of these kinds of events, is a musician himself and used to sing with Eric Nelson and the Atlanta Master Chorale, one of the really uh, treasured groups here in Atlanta, a remarkable choral group. And so he was so excited about this idea and particularly about this program since it stems originally from a vocal piece. Professor Will Ransom, pianist and artistic director of the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta. Schubert's Trout will be performed at the Georgia Aquarium this Sunday, October 2nd. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H. educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. I want to talk about a great musician, bass player, who came out of Inglewood, New Jersey. Now, New Jersey was famous for a lot of artists. People like Frank Sinatra came out of New Jersey. Bill Evans, great jazz pianist, came out of New Jersey. Count Basie came from New Jersey. And these are the places they were born. And so was this gentleman. His name is Leroy, better known as Leroy Slam Stewart. Had a unique way of bowing and humming at the same time. Yes, and he created a style all his own. That's what I like about a lot of these musicians. They have their own sound, which is beautiful. Like Bach had his own sound. Mozart had his own. That's classical. But they had their own sound. I appreciate musicians like that. Had a hit record back in the 1940s. I don't know if you old listeners will remember a tune called Flatfoot Fluji with a Floyd Floyd. He was with a gentleman by the name of uh, Slim Gaylord. They teamed up and had a hit record, and he's played with a lot of other people like uh, Benny Goodman, Art Tatum, Billy Taylor, Rose Murphy. Yeah, vocalist of Rose Murphy. Lisa Brewer, jazz man, Big Joe Turner, and Errol Garner. Yes, but there's only one other person I know of that plays in that style. He made a style that was owned, and a fellow by the name of Major Holly does the same thing now, but no one sounds like Slam Stewart. i tell you what we'll do. We'll uh, dispense with all the rhetoric about Slam Stewart and let you hear something by him. You'll see what we mean. Here he is performing with uh, Wild Bill Davis on piano. Now, Wild Bill Davis is another gentleman we could talk about in the future. He's a great organ player. He predated Jimmy Smith. Joe Jones on drums, Al Casey on guitar. You'll hear Slam Stewart. You'll recognize him because that bowing and humming is totally recognizable and it's riveting. You'll listen to it and you'll say, ah, yeah, why haven't I heard of this guy before? Here he is to do, first you'll hear the intro from Wild Bill Davis and Al Casey on guitar, and then you'll hear Slam Stewart do his take on Willow Weep For Me. Thank you. 
W.A.B.E.'s H. Johnson and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured American jazz double bass player Leroy Slam Stewart. And you can hear the full-length version of Willow Weep for Me on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10 p.m. And do return for Jazz Classics with H. Johnson every Saturday night beginning at 8. Right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Amanda Washington, the Associate Artistic Director at Actors Express, discusses their latest production, Sunset Baby by Dominique Morisot. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the conductor of the vocal ensemble, Coro Vercati, you could catch up on our website. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.